Welcome to Mission First, the podcast dedicated to asking mission-related questions to senior leaders of the federal and local governments. This podcast is published by Kerasoft, the leader in government hardware and software acquisition, and is sponsored by VMware, enabling customers to move quick and be free in a multi-cloud world. I am Jennifer Chang, your host, and today I have the pleasure of chatting with Jamie Holcomb, the Chief Information Officer for the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Jamie, I went through your background online and probably spent half an hour reading it. I'm so incredibly impressed by your experience. You have held titles like CEO, CIO, COO, Vice President, all the way back from your leadership with the Army as a platoon leader and commander. You are the perfect guest for Mission First, and I cannot thank you enough for being here. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. Very kind and humbling words. Yeah, mission first is where it's at. So I always use the phrase mission first, but people always. You only can complete your mission if you have the right people. I love that, Jamie. That is actually one of my personal leadership philosophies as well. So we have that in common. Um, so circling back to your depth and breadth of experience, both on the public and private sector realm, when you took over as CIO of PTO back in early 2019, you spoke a lot about the transformation of teams and the importance of culture. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? What did the first nine to 12 months on the job look like for you? Wow, yeah, four years ago, I can't believe it. It seems like yesterday, or you can say it's like 28 years in dog years if you're measuring it that way. But I will tell you that it has been a great experience from the moment I got there. And what you have to do in the first nine to 12 months is actually figure out the inventory. And it's not just, you know, people, it's also process and tools. The way you accomplish a mission is to figure out what you have on the ground. Then you give your vision and then you figure out the plan to get from here to there. So taking that inventory in that first nine to 12 months, what we really did, what I really did, was I figured out that, oh my goodness, this workforce of 20 and 25 years of tenure on average really knows what they're doing. However, it was fairly insular. And what I mean by that is they were able to accomplish the mission with just using the internal tools and people that they had developed over the past 30 years. So everybody was very familiar with the tools, but they were so old and outmoded that there was too much technical depth. So one of the first things that we did was decide to eliminate the technical debt and have a foundation on which to transform. And that took a lot of work to figure out what needed to be updated and what needed to be kept. And I tell you what, we had a $46 million investment that first year in that first nine to 12 months. And we created that solid foundation upon which then we transformed the agency into new modern tools. We're not there yet. The journey is not over. In fact, it'll never be over. That's one of the tenets of modernization and transformation. The whole thing is designed with the end in mind. And that end is continuously evolving, adapting, refining, and making things better, cheaper, and faster. You know, we hear that a lot, Jamie. Thank you so much for walking me through that, that nine to 12 months. 
We hear that term technical debt a lot across the federal agencies. We hear a lot of executive leaders speak about wanting to transform and wanting, wanting to modernize and wanting to do it quickly. Um, what did you have to do to get folks on board with that vision and strategy of yours? So in order to get my colleagues, as well as others, to see the burning platform because things are on fire, you have to actually relate at the tactical level. And the way I did that was to use the institutional knowledge that folks had of an outage that occurred about a year before I ever got there. In essence, one of the primary applications went down and it was down for 11 days. And that was 9,300 examiners not able to work for 11 days. And therefore, the burning platform, the fire, the we have to do something was already ignited within the executive staff as well as the line. They understood why we needed to transform and become more modern. So in that essence, you take that and you capitalize on that need and you show the most efficient way to get to the new vision. You have to have a vision before you step off. And one of those visions was to actually change into a newer atmosphere where resiliency was the key word. And what the USPTO had done before was created a hot, cold scenario. So one of the things that they were really efficient on was one data center with one backup facility. But if you only have one data center and your backup facility doesn't work very well, it's not. It's a recipe for disaster, as they found out. Also, continuity of operations is only as good as you practice. You practice what you preach. You train as you fight. I remember in the Army. And the fact is, is that they did not practice. They didn't take their backups, lay them down, and operate from the backup facility. One of the first things I did in that first nine to 12 months was, let's do this. Let's operate out of our backup facility. And what we found out was we cannot actually operate because there was not enough compute, there was not enough storage, and there was not enough bandwidth to actually continue the operations. So what we decided was to create a new modern data center in the Manassas area of Virginia. And that would be our new platform to house all the things that we couldn't put out in the cloud. So that was another vision. Why do we want to spend all this money when cloud service providers can do this for us? There is no need for a government agency to be in the data center business when there are so many other data center providers who are doing this at a much cheaper rate and you can expense it. You don't have to keep buying the new stuff because the data center providers will do that. And so one of the first things we said, we got to move to the cloud and we've got to do it with Zest. And so we have actually completed a lot of our cloud initial movement and transformation because in that first nine to 12 months taking the inventory, we coded or scored our applications in a green, yellow, and red range. Those things that are green were mostly the applications that had been developed recently, and they could be moved out to the cloud fairly simply. Now, the yellow, we needed to have some code changes, and those have been moved to the cloud recently. <clears throat> 
Finally, the red scores were those things that are not really those applications that are not really meant to be in the cloud. And we have a lot of them, unfortunately. So right now we're trying to modernize those applications and stave off the huge enterprise systems integration that occurred and have these microservices such that the architecture is more resilient. If one little thing goes down, all the other things don't fall apart. And in order to do that, you have to have independent and resilient applications that can act on their own without having to be forced to use the other's integrative systems. And so that's how we have done our movement in the first nine to 12 months and the follow-on 18 to 24 months. I love that, Jamie. And you, you touched on so many topics that of course had my head spinning. You know, I was just sitting in a multi-cloud workshop the other day and we were talking about applications and that whole red, yellow, green type coding and the red ones, uh, there's a word that one of my colleagues used, uh, unmodernizable. I don't know if that word's gonna take off, but I certainly think in this case, those red applications, we can we can put them in that bucket, you know, and and understand, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, but thank you for walking me through that. That's That's incredible. And I think that PTO certainly, you know, to have you at the forefront with that thought leadership and really driving that modernization is so important. You, you touched on a couple of really important things like being able to have a vision, being able to bring folks with you to row the boat in the right direction. Is there any other advice you'd give to others who are taking on new leadership positions with the intent to drive this transformational cultural change across an organization? Oh, yeah. Lots of advice. Number one, you need to have your colleagues behind you and supporting you. And the biggest colleague to have in your corner is the CFO. Because as they say, if you want to know where the root cause of everything, follow the money. One of the biggest reasons that I did join the PTO, and again, not pay time off, but patent and trademark <laughs> office, right? Yeah. was because we are totally fee funded. We do not take one penny of taxpayer money. And because of that, we sort of have an independence that other agencies aren't afforded. And I really like the fact that we know where every penny is spent of our fee payers money. And we have an obligation to be more productive and have quicker and cheaper actions, which develop more quality patents and registering the trademarks. And so having that as your basis, your mission, we can act, although we are a monopoly, we can act much more like a business. So I was asked to bring in some more commercial aspects of it. And following the money is key because what it allowed us to do was slice and dice different ways to look at the same problem. And we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but one of the key elements in success at the USPTO has been moving from the project management into product categories. Now, the difference between a project and a product is fairly simple. Projects have a start and stop, whereas products have a continuous life cycle. Sure, you can kill them, you can end a product, but for the most part, what we did was we mapped over 150 different projects into our 30 products over four product lines. Of course, it's pretty easy. We have patents as a product line, trademarks as a product line, the back office businesses as a product line, and finally, your IT services. 
So there's four product lines. Each has anywhere from six to eight products to total to about 30 products. And what that did was that changed the way we looked at things because it was not run by IT. Huh? I actually have eliminated the project management office and created the product categories where the business owners are in charge of each of the product teams. So the business owner has to have advice and guidance from a technical leader, sometimes an architect, other times a fancy developer. But what we do is we take those technical leads and the business owners, and that's where the mind share is created for priorities and being able to fill the backlog as well as prune or prioritize our efforts moving forward. So the sec first is get with the CFO. The second is move to a product categories where the mission is the most important thing. Each of the products has a mission to do and putting those products together in an integrated fashion completes the overall mission. So obviously the product patent line is awarding pat patents. I'm sorry. The patent product line is awarding patents. The trademark product line is registering trademarks. Well, what does the business back office business do? These things like finance and legal and procurement, those all have missions as well. And then finally, of course, the back end of IT services, procurement of processing capability, compute, the ability to do um, storage, and of course, the ability to have bandwidth and transfer all those things around. So number two is changing to that product category. There are a lot of other things that I can advise, but the biggest thing after the first two is the new ways of working. And what does that do? That actually gives folks, my, your line staff, the ability to say, hey, look, this old process, it might work, but there might be a better, cheaper, and faster way to do it. That's the old way to do it. Let's try this new way. And in essence, that's given people the impetus, the, the inspiration to try new things. Oh, we tried that five years ago and it didn't work. Okay, how about trying it now? Now might be the right time. Now, it might not be the right time because it might not fit in the priorities. So I always say, you never want to say no, but you can say, hey, not now. At the same time, you don't want that bureaucracy to be there. So in your new ways of working, you actually have to prioritize so that everybody understands what at least the first three items are. What are you doing, number one? What is doing number two? And what are you doing, number three? And everybody should have that. And then we should talk about how to put those priorities together such that we can award patents and register trademarks. So it's not just doing a mission for mission's sake. Of course, reporting is very important in the federal government, but it shouldn't take priority over awarding a patent. You don't have to comply. You have to complete your mission. If we really were to comply with all the things that are required in the federal government, you'd run out of money before you complete your mission. And I wish more government bureaucrats would understand that. The leaders in the government have an obligation to ensure that they balance and allocate those resources, not just comply. Too often, our careerists are just worried about finishing their career. Therefore, they don't take the necessary risks to put us forward. That's why I like the second career folks who have already 
you know, almost retired and are looking for that next challenge because what I can provide them is the ability to challenge the status quo and not be happy with the way that government works today. We have to make it better for all of our customers. I completely agree, Jamie. And there's so many great nuggets in what you just shared. So um, stick with me because I do have multiple follow-up questions. Um, first and foremost, I'll say that your people to teams approach, as well as the NWOW program, I think really jumped out at me as uh, two of the most transformational things that you have implemented and brought to PTO. So thank you for that. Um, I'd love to hear from you as far as the NWOW program goes, what has been one of the more surprising NWOWs that you, you and your team have discovered? Well, the ability to give up the reins to the people on the ground, the accountability, when you push it down to the tactical level, you also have to give them the resources and the funding. And what I've been amazed at is how quickly people can adapt because you're focusing on results, not process. Too often we get involved with, well, we have to do it this way. And the answer is no, that's not NWOW. That's the old ways. So instead of using the checklist, let's figure out how we get the results. And we can repeat those things that were very successful. At the same time, the failure rates decreased. So you can fail fast and fail forward. Let's not do the same thing over and over again. That's why one of the things besides just the product category, we also have the 30, 60, and 90-day plans. We do everything by a quarter, and we're able to adjust and reallocate quarter by quarter. And that is pretty much a commercial way to do business, not the government way. The government way seems to be yearly. And, oh, don't worry, we'll get to it next year. And it's never gotten to. And the other thing is you're executing a plan or a budget that was put together three years prior. And you're like, what the heck is going on? It does not meet the needs. Therefore, I'm trying to have the adaptation to the current needs rather than addressing old, old wars. The, the other thing I learned in the Army is we're always fighting the last war. We're never looking toward the new wars that are coming. And we have to do that. In business, if you did that, you'd go out of business. And I use that as an example because just because we spent that money last year does not mean we need to spend it again this year. And that is anathema to a government procurement or government budgeting cycle. It's amazing. Well, we have to spend this. You don't have to spend anything. You have to award patents and register trademarks. Get, get with it. But this is required for compliance. But how does it help in awarding patents or registering trademarks? You have to have that mission in the mind all the time. And people get tired of me saying it. But, you know, why are you filling out that report? Why do we have to have this meeting? It doesn't help. What are the results that we are actually getting? And the thing I love about the pandemic and everybody in remote work, we concentrate on the actual results instead of just having a meeting. Now, there are some people who are filled up me. Oh, my gosh, my calendar's crazy. 16 30-minute meetings. Uh, no, stop. That's not a good way to do business. You really have to think about why you're having the meeting, what the objective is, and what the results are. Status reports can be put in a report, and I can read them at my leisure. I want to make decisions and or become acquainted with something through results or demonstrations. So especially with the technical, we have to get out in front and get all these new tools in front of the examiners. 
we have two primary customers, internal and external. Internal customers are our examiners, both patents and trademarks. We have to help those examiners give them the tools that they need to prosecute their examination better, cheaper, and faster. On the other side, we have our applicants, both trademarks and patents. We have to help those customers have the experience that is required of all government agencies now. We have to get online. We have to make these processes easier to understand. Oh my gosh, you have to hire an attorney almost to figure out how to file a patent. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have to hire an attorney because that will get me in trouble. But why can't the average um, inventor, the garage mechanic, somebody who just invented some neat little gadget, why can't that person just figure it out? And that's one of our goals is to put ourselves in that applicant's shoes to say, why is the process so hard? Now, sometimes it's required because of law, you know, and that's very important. You've got to do it correctly to make sure that it will be recorded ownership, assignment, and all these things that, that are really are required because a patent is only as good as you're willing to defend it in court. And that's one of those terms of arts. Same thing with a trademark. If somebody is infringing on your intellectual property, you have to take them to court for it to be effective. So we have the responsibility to ensure that we're getting that information to the courts and to the owners such that they can defend themselves. In, when somebody's filing or infringing on their property. Yeah, and so what I love about all the things that you just walked us through is, again, mission first, right? So mission first for the internal customers, mission first for the external customers. And you really touched on a lot of, you know, new ways of working to increase the agility, right? The agility of your organization to meet the customer's needs, as well as the efficiency and being able to double click down and ask why, right? Just because we've done that all the time, doesn't mean we have to continue doing it that way. So love, love that you're continuing to challenge and ask why and change that and increase the agility and speed to market for PTO. And I love the fact of agility, right? We could talk about that for a long time. Agility does not mean that you have a set process. It's I don't do agility. I am agile, right? You be agile. And how do you have that mindset? Well, it's more like agile too instead of the agile, because so often people say, well, this is how you do agile. And I'm looking at it like, no, agile is a mindset. And it's a way right. to think about things differently each and every time. So you get better, cheaper and faster results. And so one of the things we've chosen to do is DevSecOps. So we have agile DevSecOps. That means that that product team has to have an integrated whole of developers, security experts, uh, testers, operations personnel, systems admins, database engineers. We have to have that full procurement, finance. We have to have that integrated product team or else you can't deliver on your mission. And so in doing that, the team then is responsible fully, accountably, as well as resource-wise to get the mission done. How they integrate with other product teams is key for the leadership, the senior leadership and your executives to ensure that there's handoffs, integration and efficiency across the board. But you let the product teams execute on their products. And that's, that's an important point because you want to separate the strategy from the tactics. 
And sometimes, some years, as an example, we just had a uh, new, the Biden administration came in, little new newness to the um, priorities of last. And so you have to be able to adjust. And it shouldn't take you a full three to four years before you adjust. Then you get a new president and you have to adjust again. No, you should be continually adjusted every quarter such that you're responsive and flexible to give the results desired at the time needed. Jamie, when you were talking about Agile 2.0, the mindset and the eye for the continuous improvement, I had to think of one of my favorite words, and that's Kaizen. And that's a Japanese word that stands for continuous improvement. So it's one of the, you know, I think core DNA values that we try and instill in our teams. And so I love that you have that mindset around agility and making sure that we have that eye for continuous improvement. Um, Thanks. Go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. I also wanted to say that one of the things that the supply chain crisis that occurred recently during COVID Uh, One of the things it taught us was you can take a good idea like um, shortness, shortening the supply chain and making sure you have a primary provider who you partner with. But the only car company that was able to um, move through the supply chain without having issues was Toyota because they're the ones who originated the entire thing. It doesn't mean you cut your supply down. What it means is that you identify the parts that need to be in a crisis and you have enough of those parts to bring you through the crisis. And so often our American companies try to copy that Japanese way of doing business without realizing the consequences of shortening the cycles down so much that you don't have the parts that you can put the semiconductors to put in the, in the cars while you're manufacturing them. So I think a big lesson learned on the supply chain was do it right and have a full understanding of the consequences you face if and when your suppliers aren't there. Completely agree, Jamie. That's such a great point. And yes, you're right. I mean, Toyota and their commitment to Six Sigma and continuous improvement, clearly it paid off, right? And to be able to be the only uh, car vendor to be able to um, step up and deliver during the supply chain crisis. Thank you for that example. Super relevant to, I think, all of our listeners out there. Uh, So I did want to double click back to what we spoke about earlier. I think you were talking about, you know, um, talent and uh, bringing in folks that maybe are, you know, returning to the workforce and how you're super excited about them and the mindset they bring to the table. I've personally seen a lot of your very thoughtful posts regarding job openings with PTO. I love how you lead with the mission, so important. And when I've spoken to other leaders across federal, they've spoken about their struggles in recruiting and retaining great talent. How has this experience been for you? And what do you think sets your team at PTO apart from other teams? Well, I'm glad you recognize and identify the problem. Recruiting for top talent is a very difficult thing within the federal government, mostly because of the pay scale. It's not necessarily because of the challenge. The challenges are there. It's not necessarily because people don't want to work for the government. They do. They have a patriotic spirit and so forth. But again, you can most likely work elsewhere in the commercial world uh, for a lot more money. And the first obligation you have is to yourself And the second obligation you have is to your family, your household, whatever that is comprised of. And so when you look at it that way, Americans are smart. They're not, you know, they're not going to sacrifice unless they need to. Right. 
Now, I like the second careers, the guys who have already put in, the ladies who have already done what they need to do, but they come back for that challenge and that patriotism because the patent office and the trademark office actually are engines of growth for the economy. So we can sell it that way. And we have a lot of great recruiting in that regard. The patent office and trademark office used to have the most remote workforce in the federal government. Darn it, freaking COVID. Now it destroys my core differentiation. So I have to compete with everybody else now for remote work, but that's okay. We have workers throughout the 50 states. And so most of our examiners don't come into the office. Uh, we have about 83% of our force that's still remote. So that is a, a very attractive way to recruit people in. But I will tell you, it's not just about the money. There is a big differentiation. Uh, however, what you need to do then is uh, appeal to folks and inspire them on the mission, as we've talked about, and then actually to do things that are different than the federal government. OPM, just by the words of their director, is old and antiquated. Our hierarchical system comes from the 1960s corporate man. And there's no way that a 2020 organization should be um, hold fast to all the rules of the 1960s. It's ridiculous. As an example, to think that we're going to have people enter the federal government and stay for 30 years is illogical when people have a new job every three to four years, especially in the information age. What we need to do is have people start new OPM rules such that it's attractive for entry-level workers, it's attractive for mid-level, and it's attractive for senior members to come into the government and leave the government every three to five years. And how would you attract people like that? Well, it's a very simple thing. There's many things you can do, but one thing I've thought of is the ability to say, look, you come in and you work your three to five years and it's all good, you get an honorable discharge, um, hey, at that point, you're eligible to receive full medical benefits through the federal program when you're 62 or 65 or 67. And that gives you the ability then to say, look, I've got a good retirement package. Now I can go do other things. And I think it should be encouraged that we have people go into the uh, commercial world, then into the government, into the commercial world and back in the government. That's what I have personally done. I have found it very fulfilling and it brings a better, broader, and more depth to the entire way that you could offer services to the federal government. It just makes us all better. I love that idea so much, Jamie. I mean, first and foremost, talking about the intersection of public and private sector partnerships. So being able to increase our workforce to be able to have both, I think just increases that collaboration and innovation and the speed to market, um, as well as your idea around that full medical benefits piece. Um, you know, putting in your time for three to five years, then going off, maybe taking a private sector role, returning. I mean, that's just going to increase the knowledge of our workforce, the ability to be able to relate to the mission of our customers. Um, such a great idea. So, you know, who do we have to talk to at OPM to make this happen? Well, talk to your congressman because it needs to be changed in law. We really do need to get Congress to engage in the right laws, not the special interests. And there are so many things to modernize in the federal government that really it's it's within Congress's ability to change the incentives for a federal workforce. The executive branch can only do what's on the books. And right now on the books is all the laws. 
Can we change them overnight? No, that's ridiculous. That's why I chose not to try to uh, tear down the hierarchy, but in the people's to teams movement, what I decided to do was take that very heavy triangle and then move it over into a square. What? What are you talking about? Well, people can still have their old HR managers and have that hierarchical model. As an example, developers. Developers have a senior member who's probably a senior developer who have another director who's probably done testing and quality and development, right? You can keep that structure that's in the federal government. You can keep the HR folks happy. But at the same time, every day, the daily tasks, then you are detailed over into a square box. And that square box is the product teams. Those product teams are run by a business owner who's not in your chain of command and a technical lead who's not in your chain of command. But every day, what they're doing is they're getting the mission done and you're doing it as a team. And what you bring to the team is so important. So I don't care if you're a tester with three years experience. If you're able to come in and do a package in Kubernetes and be able to have a CICD pipeline with quality tests at the end, and you've done this yourself and you show that demo to your senior manager on the product team, you're like, yeah, let's get this done. That's the new ways of working. That's how you create peoples to teams. That's how you get people inspired to do something different than the same old compliance. I mean, it's so much fun because it's unleashing the latent capacity that the federal government has. It's making engineers and designers and testers even more inspired to do their job. I love that, Jamie. And I know that we're about to get to time. So I did want to double click a little bit into some of what you shared about your move to the cloud and wondered if you could share, you know, is there any magic solution you wished someone would invent that could help to secure your agency better? Well, of course, there's no magic, right? And it's all about buyer beware. I have a multi-hybrid cloud experience going on right now. It's not ideal. It, in fact, would overcome a lot of individual shops. USPTO is large enough that we can afford to have three different service providers. And we've picked the largest ones, right? We have AWS, GCP, and Azure. Now, each one, I think, has their own idiosyncrasies, like uh, Ford and Chevy, right? Or, or McDonald's and Burger King. I like having competition within the walls because that keeps the other guys honest. And of course, Amazon Web Services has the most maturity in the federal space. And therefore, we're very uh, Amazon oriented right now. But GCP is coming up quick. They have a lot of maturation to do. And of course, uh, Azure is in the background with our O365 and SharePoint and all the great things everybody's accustomed to with Microsoft and, and their, their offerings. So we have that multi-hybrid cloud approach. But if I can say any guidance or advice, buyer beware, assume nothing and go and verify everything that you think you're inheriting to ensure. And remember, if you don't practice it, if you don't really test it, I mean, physically test it, you don't know what's going on. Make sure you know what you're getting. Assume nothing, verify everything. That's it. Very good. So, Jamie, you've built an award-winning career around your leadership strategy of leaning forward, minimizing complacency, creating a sense of urgency, and driving growth. Can you tell us about one of the projects that you have led throughout your career that you really feel embodied your leadership strategy? 
Sure. I always hearken back to uh, the most, the, the darkest days, because what do they say? It's darkest right before the dawn. And from the ashes comes the phoenix. So I really like the fact that I took a bankrupt company called the Global Internet Exchange. It was Globix. And they were delisted off the NASDAQ. Well, in three years, we turned that company around. It was, it was a cloud provider before they called it cloud. <laughs> anyway, three <laughs> years later, time. <laughs> yeah, three years later, we turned it around and we relisted it on the American Stock Exchange. So that was, uh, you know, the darkest of times to the light. And I, we did that even through the economic downturn, because what we focused on was results and getting the best out of the people and getting their inspiration, letting them do what they know was the right, make the business successful. And that's an, priorities and focus are key to any success. You can't be all things to all people. And if you are, you're very inefficient. Sometimes you got to break a few eggs to make a good omelet. And so it, in mergers and acquisitions, I learned that if everybody is just a little upset, it's probably the best idea. So use that, that, that rage, that anger, use that angst and anxiety to your advantage. Get people pointed in the same way. They might be, they might have been enemies before, but show them how in cooperating they can get ahead. I think that's what capitalism is all about. Just being able to sell your product better, cheaper, and faster than the next guy. I love that, Jamie. You know, I, I can't thank you enough for the time. I think I speak for all of our listeners when I say thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your service to our country. Thank you for continuing to ask why, for leaning in, for your innovative and, and agile approaches to business. Um, thank you so much for being a guest here on Mission First. Well, thank you for having me. It's truly my honor. I, I love speaking about this stuff because I believe in it. Well, everybody, thank you so much for tuning into our podcast today. For all of our listeners, don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Mission First. I'm your host, Jennifer Chang, and may you have a wonderful day and rest of the week ahead. Cheers.